0: position of unbelief rather than actual faith. Their God is too small. Their God is shrunken. We pray. Many times when we pray, we, we pray really from a posture of unbelief, not belief. When we pray, we find ourselves, and just examine your prayer sometimes, we, we find ourselves telling God what to do and how to do it. Rather than praying for a posture of faith, Lord, you, you know this situation, you know where I'm at. You know what's facing me. And I thank you that you have my life in your hands. I thank you that you are sovereign. I thank you that nothing's happening to me without your express will and purpose. I'm confident, Lord, that you are doing something in me. I pray, Lord, that I might know your strength. I pray, Lord, that I might know the fullness of your spirit. Help me to surrender more fully to you. Help me to surrender more fully to your well. And and but most of the time we are praying from a posture of unbelief, I think. It's part of our human condition to control things, isn't it? I've got to be in control. Now, it's not necessarily that you're always aware of that. It's just part of our condition because of the deficit in us by sin drives us to be in control. Somehow I've got to to fill this thing rather than letting God fill me and and living in a constant posture of risk, vulnerability. Vulnerability. I've got to have all the, all the ends tied. I've got to have the box nice and neat. All my categories in order. And most of us, to one degree or another, are like, kind of like that. And that just extends to God. We, we end up trying to control God, dictate to God. And when things don't go the way we want them, we're like petulant children. Stamp our feet. God is not like us. I'm thrilled by that. God, thank you that you are not like me. Thank you that your ways are not my ways or like my ways. Thank you that your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. Thank you that I cannot control you. I cannot dictate to you. Thank you that your will is absolutely perfect and sovereign. Aren't you glad that God is not like us? And we can sometimes hardly stand each other, isn't that true? I mean as much as we love one another. And that has a bearing on what I want to share with you this morning out of chapter forty eight. God doesn't do things the way we do them. Those great verses in Isaiah chapter 55, no doubt you're familiar with them, where God speaks to the prophet Isaiah, and he says, "For my thoughts are not your thoughts." He says, then, "Your ways, not my ways." As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, we, we know that we, are, we have fallen. We know that we're imperfect. We know we realize more and more, the longer you're Christian, the, the more you realize what sin has done to you. Originally, we were created in the image of God. We know what sin has done to that image, how it's defaced that image, torn that image, broken it. But God is restoring the image. He's making us like him. So that we can indeed think the way he thinks, and more and more that we can walk in his ways, less and less in our ways. In chapter 48 of the book of Genesis, we're going to see Jacob bless Joseph, but actually, he's going to bless Joseph by blessing Joseph's two sons. And he's not going to bless them in the way that's normally expected. God's ways are different than our ways, God doesn't do things as we would predict necessarily. God is infinitely creative, infinitely uh, ingenious. He has ways of doing things you and I would never, ever, in our wildest dreams, imagine. And he can bring the most crazy things together and make it beautiful. That is absolutely wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. And we're going to see that happen in this particular chapter Remember now that Jacob is about 147 years old. And he's on his deathbed. He's lived a, a relatively long life, but according to his testimony, not nearly as long as his father's. But nonetheless, he's 147. Lots of things have happened in his life. Isn't that true? Lots of different events, lots of challenges. And of all that's happened in his life, all the events of Jacob's life, the writer to the Hebrews picks out this one event as his outstanding act of faith recorded in chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews and verse 21. That's the great hall of fame, if you will, of faith down through the history of all the patriarchs. And in that verse the writer to Hebrews, tells us, By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. Out of all of his whole life, the many events of his life, this is the one event that the writer to Hebrews seeks to chronicle, to celebrate, as his outstanding act of faith. Why? Why that event? Why this event of chapter 48? Because, very simply, it's a demonstration that God does not do things the way we would do them necessarily. He's still carrying out his purpose. Jacob was still living by faith, even at the end of his life when he died. Verse 13 of chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews tells us that he, as well as the other patriarchs, did not receive... What was promised. He only saw those things and he saw them from a distance. He welcomed them from a distance. You and I may 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 die before the second coming of Christ. I would love to be here to see it. But by faith I see it from a distance. I may not be there when it actually occurs. Same thing with Jacob. He he saw the fulfillment of the promise. This this was a done deal. There was no doubt in his mind that his descendants would grow into a great nation. There was no doubt in his mind whatsoever that they would indeed uh, possess the land that God had promised them. And he would not be there to see it. But he absolutely believed it. By faith. Confident. Now, in this account, there's a subtle irony here in the fact that, just like in his youth, he was given the blessing, wasn't he? His father passed the blessing to him, and he was the second son, wasn't he? He wasn't the oldest. The oldest typically would be in position to receive the blessing, the inheritance, But he's the second one. And just like he received it as the second son, he is going to bless the second son of Joseph. But the difference is, and it's a subtle kind of a thing, whereas Jacob deceived his father, Jacob will not be deceived when he gives the blessing. You recall that the prophecy was given to Rebekah that the younger would, would rule over the older, and they knew that, and yet they still had to deceive Isaac to get that blessing. Not so here. The firstborn's blessing is going to be given to the younger brother, but in this particular case, there will be no deception, nor will there be the bitter aftermath of that deception. Last time you recall that Jacob in his testimony to Pharaoh, when Pharaoh said, how old are you? He said, my years are relatively few in comparison to my father's and my life has been difficult. The reason being, you could track it all the way back to that deception where he did not honor his father. Proverbs says this, Proverbs 10, The blessing of the Lord brings wealth. Doesn't that sound great? The blessing of the Lord brings wealth. And he adds no trouble to it. Jacob had trouble in his life. Sure, it was a blessing of the Lord, but he had to deceive to get it. The idea is that when God blesses, and there's no deception, no manipulation, there is no trouble to that blessing. So God's ways are not like our ways. It was customary for the oldest son to receive the blessing. But we see in the case of all the patriarchs, as we have been studying, the blessing did not follow the lines of natural descent. The blessing did not follow the lines of natural right. You and I have been blessed by God, have we not? God has touched us. He's anointed us. He has blessed us. He's given us an eternal inheritance. Is it based on the fact that we deserved it? Is it based on the fact that we were well-educated? That we were successful in this life? That we had social status? Not at all. See, he's driving home the point, again, that the blessing does not follow any human accomplishment, any human qualification. I'm cool, God. You need me. God says, ha, if I need you, I'm in trouble. <laughs> Let's just track down through the patriarchs and see. watch the pattern. As we've been studying these past months, who was Abraham's firstborn son? Ishmael. He was the firstborn. And according to custom, the blessing should go to Ishmael. But which son received actually received the blessing? Isaac, the secondborn. Who was Isaac's firstborn son? Esau. And the birthright was to go culturally to who? Esau. But which son actually received the birthright? That's right. Jacob, the secondborn. Who was Jacob's firstborn son? Reuben. But who actually received Jacob's blessing? Joseph. We'll see it in this chapter. Who then would Joseph's firstborn son be? Manasseh. And who received the favored blessing? Ephraim. That's right. You see, God's choice does not depend on natural status. God's choice, God's not bound by our human rules. By our customs. Now, our customs are not bad in and of themselves, but God's not bound by them. He's not bound by our customs. God's choice does not depend upon ability, God's choice does not depend upon talent. God's choice depends solely on His mercy and on His grace. God's choice depends solely on his mercy and his grace. Not how cute we are. Not how lovable we are. Not that we deserve it. Solely on his mercy and on his grace. The Apostle Paul underscores this back in the book of Romans in chapter 9 when he's talking about God's sovereign choice. Chapters 9 through 11 are powerful for this. If this is a a source of some consternation, then you should meditate and study chapters 9 through 11 in the book of Romans. But he capitalizes it right here when when, uh, Paul writes, God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I have compassion on whom I have compassion. On the surface of it, that sounds pretty hard. But it isn't. When you understand that he's God... He's the maker. He has the right over the clay to make vessels for honorable or dishonorable use, he says. It's our pride and our arrogance that would wag our finger and say, You're not fair. Was it fair that Jesus go to the cross? Was it fair that Jesus go to the cross for you and me? No. But God is fair. The Bible says He is just, He is the justifier. He is righteous. He is holy. He is merciful, compassionate, gracious. We put the verse back up, please. Verse sixteen. It does not, therefore, depend on man's effort or man's desire, but on God's mercy. It does not depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Now, from our perspective, a human perspective, it seemed like I desired it. It seemed like I made the effort, doesn't it? But we have in the word right here, it doesn't depend on that. I do respond, but it takes God to turn my heart. It takes God to turn my heart. And the same thing here, God's blessing, God's choice doesn't depend on whether I deserve it, I qualify for it. It's solely, the basis is his mercy and his grace. He makes the choice. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, again, Paul writes, and he's speaking about the wisdom of this world and how people can accredit themselves or try to accredit themselves. And he says, down in verse 26, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. And then he he proceeds to show that we weren't really that hot. (laughs) As we maybe thought we were. He says, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose, what? The foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, in other words, human criteria. so that no one may boast before him. This is all God's work. I can't take any credit for what he has done. And he chooses whom he chooses. He blesses whom he blesses. He does not have to follow what I tell him to do, what I think he ought to do, how I think he ought to do it. Am I making sense? Let me give you an illustration. This, is, this, this illustration, just every time I think about it. This was a, in another church. It wasn't our church. They, this, this church had a, a handicapped ministry, much like we do. And uh, in their handicapped ministry, the, uh, the people in the church who were working with these handicapped people were teaching them to memorize Scripture And there were a number of of people in the class who could not carry on a conversation with you. They they couldn't track with you necessarily. They they had some very, very serious deficiencies um, mentally. And so the the challenge was to teach them to memorize verses, or at least a verse. And there was one young man who worked very hard and memorized John 3.16. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever should believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16. And he was so proud. He had that verse. Everybody patted him on the shoulder. And so one Sunday in church, he was there early and standing in the foyer and kind of unassuming. And a man came to the church, who first-time visitor, he never been there. Didn't know anybody. No one knew him. He walked in. The first person to greet him was this young boy. And the man stood there and reached out his hand and shook his hand, expected to have some kind of interaction and conversation. And the boy just stood in front of him with a big grin on his face, said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only, one and only son that whoever should believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life said it flawlessly. The man just kind of looked at him, had never heard the verse, didn't know. Didn't know what to say. And so he rehearsed the verse again. And a third time, and a fourth time, by the sixth time, that man was in tears. and made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ that morning God uses the weak things the weak things you and I would never ever ever would have chosen that young man to witness to that businessman we would have tried to find the most sophisticated, erudite, articulate man in the church to witness to him, wouldn't we? But God chose that young boy who could not even carry on a conversation, who'd worked hard to memorize one verse, and God used that one verse. True story. True story. It's all about God and what He's doing. And He doesn't do things the way we do them. That's so exciting. Because you never know what He's going to do. And you learn to live on the knife edge of faith, don't you? Moment by moment. Woo! Where are we going today? Now in chapter 48, Joseph. Will bless, or Jacob will bless his two, his son Joseph through Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. But Jacob would bless them not as Joseph expected, as we shall see. God always does things his way and for his purposes. Look at the first four verses with me. Sometime later, Joseph was told, now remember, Jacob was on his deathbed. He's already earlier extracted a promise from Joseph that when he dies, that Joseph would not bury him in Egypt, but he would take him to the land of Canaan, the land that was promised, and they would bury him there. So now Joseph is summoned to his father's bedside. He's told your father is ill. He took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. When Joseph was told your son Joseph has come, or Jacob was told, Your son Joseph has come to you, Israel rallied his strength and sat up on the bed. So apparently it took a great deal of effort for him, and he is really, really close to passing. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and there he blessed me and said to me, I am going to make you fruitful and will increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples, and I will give this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. So here is Joseph come to his father's bedside with his two sons, And Jacob rehearses to his son Joseph God's promises to him. And he identifies the promises given to him at Luz, or Bethel. Now there were two times when Jacob was at Bethel. The first time was on his way away, on the way to Haran, you recall, when he saw the ladder. And the second time was when he was coming back from Haran, coming back from Uncle Laban, going back home. The occasion that he's referring to is the second occasion recorded in chapter 35 of Genesis. That's when God speaks to him and pronounces these promises to him once again. Now, in verse 11 of chapter 35, it's interesting. If you compare chapter 35, the promises there, to Jacob's rehearsing the promises, there is a change. There's a change in the verbal forms. And there's a reason for this. In verse 11 of chapter 35, God says, Be fruitful, increase in number. Now in the Hebrew, it's in the imperative mood. And the imperative mood typically is the mood of a command or the mood of entreaty. I'm commanding you to this. I, I entreat you to do this. But not in that particular account. It's more a, a, a form of well-wishing. It's as if God said, May you be fruitful and increase. Not leaving any doubt in Jacob's mind. But it's like a, a, good, a good wish, if you will. That's, the, that's how it's stated in chapter 35. But as Jacob retells the story to Joseph, he doesn't use the same verbal forms. He changes the verbal forms to stress the fact that God, God would indeed bring about all that had promised. It would be God to do this. God is faithful to his word. Look with me again at verse 4. He says, And God blessed me, and God said to me, I am going to make you fruitful and will increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples. I will give this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. God is going to do what he said he was going to do. This is important for Jacob to pass on to Joseph. Joseph jacob is going to die he's going to pass off the scene he's giving them this assurance and this heritage much like as a parent you want to pass on to your children uh, a confidence a confidence god is faithful he will do what he has said you can trust him now at some point that faith that you're passing on to that child that child has to make it their own faith doesn't it don't they A lot of times kids will hitchhike along on their parents' faith for a long time. But at some point they come to a place of crisis in their life. And when they come to that place, their faith has to be their faith. They can't can't be your faith anymore. Does that make sense to you? So Jacob is, in effect, telling Joseph, God is faithful. God is going to do this. And he speaks in very definitive language. God will do this. God will do this. God will do this. Because Jacob is going to pass off the scene and leave Joseph as the one with the blessing, in effect, the head of the family. And as such, then he must now take the lead and he must inspire the rest of the family with a confidence in God to continue witnessing to the promises of God, the faithfulness of God. They're going to be in Egypt for 400 years. They're going to need some encouragement, aren't they? Absolutely. So this is very, very important. And so he's... And, and incidentally, this, as, as Jacob rehearses these promises, he emphasizes that aspect of the blessing that had in fact been the very theme of the Joseph narrative. And if you recall what the theme of the Joseph narrative is, is what? What would be the theme of the... If you could sum up all the Joseph narratives into one theme, what would it be? What you meant for bad, God meant for good. So so Jacob is telling him, he says, he says, Don't worry. Don't worry what, ha- what happens. Don't worry about what happens. God ultimately will bring about all that He has promised. God ultimately will bring about all that He's promised. Turn to your neighbor. Say that. God ultimately will bring about all that he has promised. All that had happened to Jacob. I mean, he's reviewed his whole life. All that had happened to him, all that had happened to his household, had been God's plan. And all of it was intended by God for good. As you look back at your life, you see all your mistakes and all the sin and all the craziness and all the foolishness and all the stupidity that you did and still do. Somehow, it's in God's plan. I don't understand it all and nobody does. We wish that we could do everything absolutely perfectly and right, don't we? But every time we look at our foolishness and our sin, our faith begins to wibble. And we beat ourselves up. Well, I'm just a wretch. And we get our eyes off of God. Jacob's testimony to Joseph, again, continues this great heritage that God is faithful and all that's happened has been in his plan and he's going to work it for your good. I like that. I like that. It inspires me. It gives me hope. I'm encouraged. God hasn't abandoned me. He has a great purpose for my life. And he's still at work, and he's still fashioning me, and he's still doing things with all my stupidity. And I can be stupid at times. Verse 5. Now then, your two sons, born to you in Egypt, before I came to you here will be reckoned as mine. Now, Jacob is going to, in fact, adopt Joseph's two sons. Now he names them. Does anybody notice anything unique and interesting about the names? What is it? The second son is mentioned first. Ah, Randy, very good. <laughs> the second son is mentioned first. Go back up to verse 1 and notice the order of the names. Manasseh is named first, right? And now Jacob reverses the order. There's a hint there of what's coming. He names the second son first. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon. Now, Reuben and Simeon, Reuben and Simeon were the first two sons born to Jacob chronologically, and they're named in order. But he's giving Ephraim preeminence. Just as Reuben and Simeon are mine, any children born to you after them will be yours. In the territory they inherit, they will be reckoned under the names of their brothers, Ephraim and Manasseh. And we'll talk about why that's going to be. Then he says in verse 7, As I was returning from Padan... To my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan while we were still on the way, a little distance from Ephrath. So I buried her there beside the road to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. Now, as I said, Jacob is going to die. The promises are going to proceed through his sons. In the accomplishment of God's promises, this is very important, It would be absolutely necessary for all of Jacob's sons to understand their individual roles and their corporate roles. What's my purpose and where do I fit in? It's just like us. What's my purpose, where do I fit in? God has a plan for his nation, and they are going to be the progenitors, they're going to be the the patriarchs, they're going to be the founders of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. How are... What are going to be the things that are going to characterize them? What are the things that are going to characterize each tribe? How are they all going to fit in together? And so it's important for them to know them, and he's, this is why the chapter 48 and 49 are listed here at the close of his life, so that he tells them, blesses them, and prophesies over them uh, where they're going to fit. Now Jacob, first of all, wants to recognize Joseph. That's why he's mentioned here in chapter 48. He's the first of the sons He's going to take preeminence in that sense. He wants to recognize him in a special way. One, because, recall, if it weren't for Joseph, the whole family would have perished. Isn't that true? All that Joseph had gone through laid the the groundwork and prepared for Jacob and his family to come down to Egypt so they might survive. And so his father wants to recognize him for that reason. But also, more importantly, because he was the firstborn. Joseph was the firstborn, was he not? Of Rachel. Very good. He was the firstborn son of Rachel. Do you suppose that Jacob originally intended that Rachel be his only wife? And then, in that case, Joseph would indeed have been the firstborn. It had been Laban and his deception. The reason that things had worked out differently, huh? So it's appropriate then that Joseph be regarded in this particular sense as Jacob's firstborn. Now again, it was customary for the oldest son to receive the father's blessing and accompanied with that blessing was a double portion of the inheritance. But the father had the right to change the arrangement if he so desired, if he had good reason to do so. Who was literally the chronological firstborn to Jacob? Reuben. Reuben had disqualified himself, hadn't he? Reuben had evidenced uh, a weak character, proving he was not fit for the responsibility. Now, he's not disqualified because he did it. it his disqualification just proved that he had the weak character. In 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 1, in the record it says this, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. Now, this parenthetical statement. He was the firstborn, but when he defiled his father's marriage bed, his rights as firstborn were given to the sons of Joseph, son of Israel. So he could not be listed in the genealogical record in accordance with his birthright. He's he lost it. And so, though Reuben was actually the firstborn, it's going to go to Joseph. Now, Jacob decides that it would be most effective to convey this double inheritance not just to Joseph, but to Joseph's two sons. He has a double inheritance. Joseph has two sons. The inheritance is going to go to both of these sons rather than to Joseph himself. And he would do this by adopting them as his own sons so that they would be equal in rank, as he said, to Reuben and to Simeon. So they're going to be the equivalent of regular brothers in rank to Reuben and Simeon, the first two, and as well to all the rest of the brothers born to Jacob. And then Jacob recalls his his great, great love for Rachel and how she had died prematurely when she gave birth to Benjamin. Jacob had hoped, certainly, to have other sons from Rachel, but this hope was never realized when she died. Jacob also recognized the possibility that Joseph might have other sons. So he's adopting Manasseh, he's adopting Ephraim. And he says, now when you have other sons, because there's only a double portion, he's not getting any more, then the other sons are not going to get a portion. They're going to fall under Ephraim and Manasseh. They're going to be part of those two tribes, should he have it. And the record doesn't give us any visibility that he did, in fact, have other sons. Look at verse 8. When Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he asked, Who are these? Who are these? Now remember, his eyesight is horrible. He can't see too well. Why might he ask that question? (coughs) Might maybe, a possibility, I can't can't be absolute about this, but it always is interesting to me. He had deceived his father when his father couldn't see too well. So who are are those guys? (laughs) He doesn't want to be deceived. And so Joseph said, they are the sons God has given me here, here in Egypt. And then Israel said, bring them to me so I may bless them. Now Israel's eyes were failing because of old age and he could hardly see. So Joseph brought his sons close to him and his father kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again. And now God has allowed me to see your children too. And then Joseph removed them from Israel's knees and bowed down with his face to the ground. He brings his sons to his father. And his father hugs them and kisses them. But first he says, Who are they? And Joseph identifies them to his father. He hugs them and kisses them. And then in verse 11, this poignant, poignant statement. Now remember, Jacob has been now with Joseph for 17 years. Returned, they've been been reunited for 17 years. No doubt they've had wonderful fellowship. But here here at this moment where, where he's getting ready to bless Joseph, bless his two sons... He's got these two boys. He's hugging them and kissing them. He looks at Joseph. He said, I never, ever expected to see you again. And now, not only am I seeing you, but your two sons as well. Powerful moment. I never expected to see you It was utterly hopeless. I was struck with grief. Hopeless. You know, we never know. We never know what God will do and how God will bring good out of a hopeless situation. There is always hope I I face a grievous situation, a grievous situation, hopeless situation, but I face it with the knowledge that God is going to bring something marvelous out of it, something that I would never, ever conceive of myself. God is the God of redemption. He redeems and redeems and redeems and redeems. Beloved, when you face a difficult and a hopeless situation, don't give up. Don't throw your hands up. I know know sometimes a loss is unbearable as Jacob's sense of loss over Joseph. 25 years he missed him. But how God had redeemed that situation. And now his testimony. We have hope. And then Joseph moved his sons away from his father, and he bowed down to his father with his face to the ground. Back in chapter 37, you recall that uh, when we first met Joseph, he had two dreams, didn't he? Remember the substance of those two dreams? First dream was what? That his brothers would bow down to him. Second dream was that his parents would bow down to him. The second one never happened. We could chalk that up to his youthful enthusiasm. He's on a roll. I had a dream. I had another dream. Everyone, the whole world is going to be bound down to me. (laughs) Sometimes you get carried away, huh? Over spiritualized things. But we did read in the record where his sons did bow down to him on a number of occasions. His parents never did bow down to him. It's Joseph who bows down to his father. You find it right here. You recall that when Jacob had his interview with Pharaoh. Who blessed whom? Jacob blessed Pharaoh. The lesser is blessed by the greater. And in the same situation right here, Joseph recognizes the preeminence of his father. Here's Joseph, second most powerful man in all of Egypt, bowing down with his face to the ground to his father, awaiting his father's blessing. Verse 13, and Joseph took both of them, Ephraim on his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh on his left toward Israel's right hand, and brought them close to him. But Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head, though he was the younger, and crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. And then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they increase greatly upon the earth. Here's Joseph. He brings his sons to his father now. He places Manasseh at Israel's right hand and Ephraim at Israel's left hand. The right hand is significant of the greater blessing. This is the blessing that's going to go to the one who has the status, if you will. But what happens Israel switches his arms. And he puts his right hand on Ephraim's head and his left hand on Manasseh's head. And then he invokes this blessing on Joseph and his sons. And he prays in the name of God. He prays in the name of the triune God. The Trinity. The three persons of the Godhead. The God before whom my fathers walked. That would refer to God the Father. The God who has been my shepherd. The one who has shepherded me, cared for me, walked alongside me. The Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit. And then he says, the angel who has delivered me. Who might that be a reference to? God the Son. The three persons of the Trinity, a reference right here in this ancient text. Now you recall the earlier patriarchs, Enoch, Noah, Genesis chapter 5, Genesis chapter 6, it's recorded of them that they walked with God. And by Jacob's testimony, his father, Abraham, his father Isaac, walked with God. Later on, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 16, Moses would say this, For I command you today to love the Lord your God and to walk in His ways. So you see the theme continuing. Moses says the essence of the covenant relationship with God was that God's people were to love Him and they were to walk in His ways. Nothing has changed, has it? Love the Lord your God. Walk in His ways. Even the prophets would say that. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Again, this picture of walking with God. Walking with God. And Jacob identifies God as his shepherd. This is the first of many references to God as our shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. He shepherds me. And then the angel who delivered me. The literal translation, we have the word delivered in the NIV text. The literal translation of the Hebrew word is redeemed me the angel who has redeemed me and this is the first time in the bible that we have the use of that hebrew word for redeem used and i think it's significant that this word describes the work of the great angel of the lord and throughout the old testament you see in the angel of the lord the angel of the lord and who is the angel of the lord most scholars believe it's none other than the pre-incarnate Christ. So you've got a reference now to the Father, to the Son, to the Holy Spirit, recognized by Jacob as he pronounces the blessing on these boys. The God of his fathers had surely provided for Jacob. That's his testimony. The God of his fathers had protected him marvelously through all these years, just as he had promised that he would. And Jacob knew he could call on him in faith to bless those sons, specifically the two upon whose heads his hand now rested. And they were to be called by Jacob's name. In other words, they were to be acknowledged. They'd be recognized as his immediate sons now. And they were to be recognized as the sons of Isaac and of Abraham, just as Jacob's other sons were. Their status was to be the same as those other sons. And they indeed would multiply greatly as God had promised Abraham, I will multiply you into a great nation. So here's, here's Isaac crossing his hands, blessing these two boys. Is there a problem? Is there a problem? What's the problem? Joseph's going, uh, Dad, Dad, you got it wrong. Don't you love it when your kids correct you? (laughs) But is there really a problem? Is there really a problem? No. No. Verse 17. When Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased. God, Dad, can't you get anything right? So he took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to him, No, my father, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son. I know. I know what I'm doing. He too will become a people. He too will become great Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he, and his descendants will become a group of nations. He blessed them that day, and he said, In your name, referring to Joseph, will Israel pronounce this blessing. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. And so he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. And then Israel said to Joseph, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and take you back to the land of your fathers. The you is... Both, both words are, are plural. He knows that Joseph is going to die there too. The idea is that he will take your descendants back to the land. And to you, as one who is over your brothers, I give you the ridge of land I took from the Amorites with my sword and my bow. So receiving the blessings of God does not depend on one's natural status in the world. We see that clearly evidenced there. On the contrary, the blessings of God is based solely on his grace and his choice. The one to whom the blessing did not belong has become heir of the promise. Do we deserve the blessing? we become heir to God's promise, haven't we? Absolutely. And Ephraim would grow into a great people. In fact, Ephraim would, 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 would be the name designated For the ten northern tribes, when the nation of Israel splits, and we'll read this later on in in the history, when the nation of Israel splits after the reign of Solomon, it, it splits into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, ten tribes in the north will become known as Ephraim. The two tribes in the south will become known as Judah. Joshua will be a descendant of Ephraim. Caleb will be a descendant of Judah. Fascinating. Fascinating. And so Jacob now concludes his blessing by assuring Joseph that God will be with his descendants and bring his descendants back to the land of his fathers. And then Jacob mentioned a very special tract of land which he himself had conquered from the Amorites. We have no record of him actually conquering the land himself. This is the land of Shechem. If you go back to chapter 33, it wasn't actually... Jacob who did it, remember, it was his sons, Reuben and Simeon, who went and slaughtered the Shechemites. But he did take possession of that tract of land, because you see later on in chapter 37, where his sons are actually uh, uh, have their sheep in that land of Shechem. So he took possession. And so... He gives to Joseph the land of Shechem, and it's it's a piece of land that really is is a token of the whole land. This is yours. I give it to you. Now, interestingly, Joseph, his bones are carried back to the land, and he is buried in Shechem, but not until the end of the book of Joshua. The second to the last verse of the book of Joshua They've carried Joseph's bones with them for years and years and years and generations. And finally, when they've conquered the land, that's when they put Joseph's bones to rest in the land of Shechem. An amazing prophecy. Joseph gets a double portion, but it's given to Ephraim and Manasseh. God's choice. Beloved, God doesn't do things the way we do them. He has his own ways, his own purposes. Our challenge is to submit to him. Our challenge is to trust him. Say, Lord, you don't do things the way I do. You don't do things the way I do. I have no basis to be angry with you. I have no basis to judge you, to be critical of you, because your ways are good and pleasing and perfect. And I am going to learn to walk with you. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you who are not like us. Thank you that your ways are not like our ways. Thank you that your ways are indeed higher than our ways. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to qualify for salvation. Your salvation is by, solely by your grace and your mercy. Your choice is a merciful choice, gracious choice. Thank you. We are humbled by that once again, encouraged by that, strengthened by that. And Lord, we do thank you that we can indeed walk with you. You have set us free from the power of sin. You've given us a new life. And thank you, Lord, that when we do stumble, when we do fall short, that you don't condemn us. Thank you, Father. We love you this morning, and we do worship you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.